Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Really made joining with us today, Mr. Ralph Ellis, the author. And as I'm remembering to say it right now, uh, always make sure and check the description box of my videos because I'll throw links for additional information in there. Um, I'll have links for getting a book from Ralph Ellis, uh, going to his YouTube channel, and kind of surprised me today that uh, he was willing to do an interview because he's got so many of them out there. So, Ralph, I really want to thank you for being gracious with your time. How are you doing today? Well, right now, I am not getting any audio from you. So let me see what the situation is with that. All right. You were showed that you were muted. So I unmuted you. Yeah. Okay. Can you hear me now? Okay. Much better. Yes, I can hear you now. So go ahead to uh, that if you want. Yeah, doing very well. Thanks. It's uh, been a nice Sunday. So it's evening over here, midday over in Florida. Yep. And one of the things I think I want to cover, I've got also another extra question that somebody had asked me to uh, touch base with you on. But I've kind of named this. Uh, historical Jesus and listening to you the historical Jesus may not be the historical Jesus everybody learned about in Sunday school or they heard about in church this morning if if they attended um, and you know I'll give you this supplementary question somebody asked me to ask you and you can just put this in if you want. but they wanted to hear your version on the Christmas story and the uh, birth of Jesus, uh, whether it's a virgin birth, whatever the case may be, uh, however that fits into what you want to explain to us today. Yeah, so my story is a little bit different. Um, actually, it's the same story. It's just that the uh, people are not quite the people that people expect. So instead of finding a sort of pauper prince of peace, I managed to find a uh, warrior monarch, a real king, a real king who has been lost from history. And uh, you might wonder how you can lose a king from history, but you can quite easily through Roman propaganda. They didn't want you to know anything about this king because this king started uh, a bit of a revolt against Rome. Uh, and it, we all know that Jesus was a bit of a revolutionary, but in my case, he was a real revolutionary. And of course, the Romans didn't like that. They didn't want anyone to know about that. And so they um, 
intentionally uh, deleted him from history. And that's why he's very difficult to find. But uh, he is there if you look hard enough. And uh, the reason I managed to find him, I suppose, was because I found Saul. St. Paul is, is the first character I went looking for. Because, well, you have to ask yourself, how, how do all of these, um, you know, very famous people go missing from history? You know, Saul is the most important person, perhaps in the last 2000 years, the guy who wrote most of the uh, New Testament. And some somehow he goes missing from history as well. Uh, yeah, they're, they're very um, uh, forgetful, these people. They, they seem to forget all of their major heroes and characters. So how did they um, manage to lose Saul? Well, I don't think they did. I just don't think they want you to know who he is because it changes the story somewhat if we find out who he really was. Um, and he's not a very nice character, so that's another reason for losing him. So how do we go about finding someone who is only visible in the New Testament record and nowhere else? Well, I went looking for some attributes, some similarities. And um, I found this character who was very similar to what we know about Saul. So, you know, this, this other guy was a Jew. He was raised in Jerusalem. He was a Roman citizen. He was educated as a Pharisee. He became a rabbi. Um, he didn't like long hair. I don't know if people know about that. If you look at um, 1 Corinthians 11, 14, it says uh, that this is Saul saying, does not nature teach you that long hair is shameful on a man? Okay, so here we've got a very Romanized Jew because he was a Jew. Um, and this other character is exactly the same. He was very Romanized. Um, both of them had a flash of inspiration and changed sides. They both traveled widely in Europe. They were both um, had many opponents who didn't like them. And uh, more tellingly, they were both on the same shipwreck. So they had a prison ship that was going um, from Judea to uh, Rome in about AD 62. Um, yes, uh, AD 62. And uh, this uh, ship, it, uh, it was the Castor and Pollux. So they had names then as well. And it went up to, um, uh, it went up to Cyprus first. And then it went uh, down towards the southeast and got caught in a storm and was dashed to pieces on Malta. And both of these characters were in this ship, St. Paul and this other character. And then they were both uh, rescued. They were taken to Naples and they were both taken to Rome to go and see Nero. So they both had an audience with the emperor. So who is this um, second chap who is so similar to the uh, St. Paul? Uh, he's Josephus Flavius, the historian, and the very famous historian. And that is that tells us quite a lot about the uh, New Testament events, but it also tells us why this guy was deleted from history, because nobody would want um, Josephus Flavius to be the 
main hero of the gospel texts. Um, he was um, not a very likable guy. He was, uh, what do I call him? I call him the um, uh, Quicksilver Quilled Quisling of uh, Judea in the first century because uh, he was a traitor to, to the Jewish cause. And uh, he only ever looked after one person, and that was himself. So he was not a very nice character. And the other problem with this guy is he appears to be born a little bit too late. So everyone says that uh, Saul was born in AD 10, but there's no evidence for that. So I think he was uh, Josephus Flavia, so he was actually born in AD 37. And uh, lots of people said that's too late. You can't have him born in AD 37 and still go on his evangelical tours. But actually, it works out quite well because uh, he was 15 on his first, 15 years old on his first evangelical tour. And uh, yeah, he would have been a man because you become a man uh, under Judaism at 13 or 14 and uh, at your bar mitzvah. And then you're a man and you can marry, have a profession, have a wife, have children, everything. And so, yes, he was a very young man but he was still a man. But the, um, the epistles seem to indicate that anyway, because remember that Barnabas, his traveling companion, was Jupiter, and he was just merely the little fiery um, Mars. So um, yes, he was most definitely the younger of the two. And of course, this is what you do if you're sending people out on um, evangelical tours. Uh, you send out the youngsters. You don't send out old people who have commitments, you know, who already have a wife and a house and a job and a profession and cannot get the time off to go and do this laborious work going around uh, the whole of the Mediterranean. And so you send out the youngsters, just as, you know, Mormons and so on do to this day. So, yes, St. Paul was a very... Uh, St. Paul, yes, Saul was a very famous person. He was Josephus Flavius. And rather than being an obstacle, that becomes explanatory because we have some problems with uh, with Saul. Oh, and they both had the same publisher as well. So, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So Saul and Josephus Flavius uh, both had the same publisher, Epaphroditus. Yeah, so there were many links between these two. Um, but as I say, it becomes explanatory because uh, we have these stories um, about Saul, uh, who was um, working uh, with the Jewish authorities against the uh, revolutionaries uh, in Judea. Uh, in fact, he was um, he was putting them into prison. Just see if I can get a, uh, a quick reference. As long as you're referring to, you know, uh, time when Saul was putting people into prison, there's something that I came across looking at the book of Acts, Luke Acts, 
as far as authorship goes. When I was going through a book of Acts, we hear a lot of times that uh, the followers of the way were actually the early Christians. And I find that interesting in Acts because the term Christian and the way are both mentioned in there synonymously at the same time. So it's not necessarily like one necessarily came before the other, but that they were two uh, different sects. And uh, the sect of the way is actually referred to as a sect in, in the book of yeah. Acts. And, you know, Christianity of the churches today teaches that Saul was out persecuting Christians. And I say, no, he, he wasn't. In fact, by his own word, he wasn't. He said he was persecuting followers of the way. Mm. And I really firmly believe Christianity is something that Paul morphed off from those teachings of the way. Yeah, um, it's not well widely known, but if you read Acts of the Apostles, it's pretty obvious that um, uh, Saul, uh, Jesus was not a Christian. So Christianity has nothing to do with the church of Jesus and James. Uh, Jesus and James were both Nazarene. Um, and that was quite a different sect. You know, that was a Judaic sect. I call it Egypto-Judaic because it followed a lot of the ancient Egyptian sort of um, uh, veneration. Uh, but uh, Saul set up his own church. So this was at the Council of uh, Jerusalem, uh, which was just slightly after this. It would have been eight, more like AD 55 or something of that nature after the evangelical tours. And uh, he, on his first tour he got stoned and whatever lots of opposition people didn't want to know what they were doing um so he went to james the brother of jesus and said look you know can i even evangelize to the uh to the gentiles to the greeks because they seem to be more interested in this than the orthodox jews do you know the classical jews and for some reason jesus uh, james said yes and he said look you know here are the four rules for simple judaism which I, I call it simple judaism uh judaism for gentiles uh which were don't eat meat sacrificed to idols don't drink blood don't uh, eat strangled animals because they still have the blood inside them and don't uh, indulge in fornication which normally means sort of incest because there was a lot of that going around we will see um, and so they were the four rules of simple Judaism. And so Saul went off on his second tour preaching to the Gentiles, which is why he became the apostle to the Gentiles. So there were two completely different churches, as you said. There's the Church of Jesus and James, which was, I call it, Egypto-Judaic. Um, their primary symbol was the Zodiac. We will look at this in a minute. Um, and then you had simple Judaism, which was the Church of Saul, uh, which was pro-Roman, uh, Judaism for Gentiles, you could call it. And these two churches became at odds with each other. So they were competitors. And the Church of Jesus and James may have mocked uh, Saul when he started, but he became more powerful than the Church of Jesus and James. And it was the Church of Saul that became Christianity. 
So anyone who is a Christian is believing in the church of the enemy of Jesus, not the church of Jesus. So, yeah, so when we were talking about Saul persecuting people, yes, of course, he was not persecuting his own followers, the church of Saul, the uh, Gentile church. He was persecuting the church of Jesus and James, the Nazarene church. Um, and that's what he was doing in Acts of the Apostles. And we have several uh, instances of this. So, but the problem is, well, I'll, I'll read out just a couple of quotes so people know what, what he was doing. It says, Saul made havoc on the church, entering into every house and committing them to prison. Acts 8.3. I persecuted, so this is first person. He's talking about himself. I persecuted them unto death, binding and delivering men and women into prison. Question is, uh, and also it says elsewhere that he killed some of them as well. How was Saul, who was only a tent maker, committing people to prison? Under what authority was he committing people to prison? Well, he couldn't uh, under the classical identification of Saul. But of course, if he was Josephus Flavius, we know exactly how and why he was doing that, because Josephus Flavius uh, was the army commander appointed by the Jerusalem church and the priesthood to be in charge of Galilee. And the role of Josephus Flavius in Galilee was to arrest Jesus and his followers, Jesus of Gamala Sophias. So there was a guy who was the... Let's um, also join another dot. Mm. So I missed that second. Let's also join because you're saying uh, was an army commander. And you've also mentioned uh, Well, do you think he was working for, you know, Coleman uh, camping equipment? Was the military using the tents, and so that's who Paul was making tents for. Amen. Yeah, um, you're you're rather broken there. Can you um just re reset your microphone a little bit, maybe just in case it's you, your microphone and not the communication? I I can't really hear you. Can All right, yeah, maybe... it's probably the Wi-Fi. That's better right now. Yeah, okay. no, no, that, yeah. that, 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 that solved it. Sorry, say again, I missed that. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, we know Paul was a tent maker. Well, it, he wasn't working for, like, Coleman camping equipment back in the day. It, who was get, using these tents? It was the military using the tents. And that draws oh, a no. parallel between him and Joseph Flavius. No, no the, 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 the tents, this is another mistranslation. They love to uh, mistranslate everything uh, in order to ensure that the Jesus character ends up as a pauper prince of peace. So they want all of these people to be common artisans, you know, carpenters, tent makers, fishermen. Um, no, he wasn't a tent maker. He was a Sukkot maker for the festival of Sukkots. Uh, at which, of course, 
all of the aristocracy make a tent, a big tent, which is a copy of the tabernacle. And the festival of tents, you go and stay in the tent for two days during the festival period. And of course, Queen Helena, the guy that the, the queen that he worked for, we'll come on to this in a minute, had the largest Sukkot in the whole of Judea. And that's what they're talking about when he was a tent maker. So that elevates him from being a mere tent maker into being a very senior aristocrat within the royal family of this particular royal family. Uh, we'll come on to which one it was in a minute. So yeah, that reference to tent is, is a, a mistranslation. So the question still stands, um, how was this guy putting Nazarene, um, the Nazarene, the Church of Jesus and James, how was he putting them in prison? Well, as Josephus Flavius, that's exactly what he was doing. Uh, his, his role was to arrest Jesus of Gamala Sophias. Now, Jesus of Gamala was said to be the leader of 600 rebel fishermen. So who in the first century was the leader of rebel fishermen. It has to be a reference to the biblical Jesus. And so Josephus Flavius was arresting the uh, followers and the army, as it were, of the biblical Jesus. That's what it says in his um, Jewish wars. So we have a direct reference, but only if you understand that Saul was Josephus. Uh, and that and that many of these events were slightly later than advertised in the Gospels. So the Gospels would put all of these events into the AD 20s. But under this new explanation, this was all happening in the AD 60s. Because this was the time of the big revolt was the AD 60s. And they've put this story back into the AD 20s because nobody wanted you to know anything about it because Rome didn't want you to know that you could rebel against Rome. And so this leader of the revolt, they couldn't delete him. In fact, he was a little bit useful because Christianity was useful uh, to the Romans. Um, so he wasn't deleted, but they didn't want you to know he was anything to do with the Jewish revolt. So they stuffed his, uh, uh, his life back into the AD 20s where you could not find him. And that's why nobody has ever found him uh, in the past. I'm the first um, person to ever find who he is. Um, yeah, we were talking about the tent makers. If anyone wants to look it up, that comes from Acts 18.3, because he says that Saul was a tent maker. Um, but the main thing, I suppose, is we need to go and find this, this monarchy. And uh, how do we do that? Well, before you show this monarchy, Ralph, I want to mention yep. something. What you, what you said there totally lines up with something that I've firmly believed ever since I was young. And that was that the reason why Jesus was speaking in parables wasn't because, you know, he had some sort of esoteric truth that he was trying to keep hidden and it was only for people with ears to hear and eyes to see but it was because that actually that lifetime that that span of ministry if you want to call it that was actually later in the first century closer to AD 70 
where there was these revolts by the Jews against Rome, and he didn't want to come off sounding like, you know, he was a big, you know, tax protester or anything like that. Uh, he wanted to kind of keep his message on, on the DL, on the down low just a little bit, so he didn't seem like the rebel that he really was against Rome. Well, that's how they've used those parables. We'll come across one in a minute. Um, because yes, they've they've reinterpreted those pa parables in a strange way, as you say, to make him look like a simple artisan. But of course, that's not what the parable says. So we'll come across one of those in a minute. Um, and it's very interesting because it tells us exactly what the Jesus character was trying to do in this revolt. Um, but we, we need to find this monarchy, and the easiest way to do it is to look at the um, the death of John the Baptist. Now, I don't know if people know, the death of John the Baptist is a real historical event. So we don't just have to rely on the New Testament for it. We have a, a complete account of this by Josephus Flavius, and it appears to be a real um, account because there are a couple of passages in Josephus which are interpolations that have been put there by later by later Christians like Eusebius, um, but this one appears to be a real historical account of the death of John the Baptist, and it's interesting because it tells us who this royal family was. Um, so this this is, if people don't know the story, um, Herod Antipas. Uh, was married to the daughter of Aretas of Petra, the king of Petra. Uh, her name was Phastalus. Um, but uh, he fell in love with Herodias, who was the wife of his brother, Herod Philip. So he, he divorced uh, Phastalus and sent her back home again and married Herodias. Um, and John said, that's illegal for various reasons. That's an illegal marriage. <laughs> And because of that, of course, John got his head cut off, uh, which was delivered on a platter to, to the Tetrarch. Um, so that's a very famous uh, story. But Josephus tells us about the subsequent events because it caused a war. This is the sort of stuff that um, Josephus Flavius is really interested in. So Josephus says of this, um, King Aretas of Petra made war between him and Herod, uh, Herod Antipas, and raised armies on both sides. Uh, and when they had joined battle, all of Herod's army was destroyed by the treachery of some fugitives who were from the Tetrarchy of Philip, they were from Syria, uh, who joined with Aretas' army. Now that's very telling because Josephus knows everything that's going on. So here in this particular passage, he will not tell you who the auxiliary troops were that defeated Antipas. They were just fugitives from Syria. And, you know, that's a red flag because you know that Josephus knows exactly who these people are. But he's deleted them because he was ordered by Vespasian, Emperor Vespasian, to delete this monarchy from history. So how do we find the truth of this, well, we go to the Syriac historians, Moses of Corinne, who's a Syriac historian. Now, they had a different tradition because they were uh, cut off from Western Christianity for hundreds of years uh, behind the Council of Chalcedon 
and the uh, Iron Curtain of Islam. And so they had a different tradition over there. And, uh, but he gives exactly the same story with some additional um, extras on it, which are very interesting. So Moses says, Moses of Corinne, this is, he says, King Abgarus, now there's a new name. He's the king of Edessa. Uh, king Abgarus allied himself with King Aretas of Petra and gave him some auxiliary troops to make war upon Herod Antipas. It's the same story. Being sharply attacked, Herod's troops were defeated thanks to the help of the brave Edessans. As if by divine provenance, vengeance was taken for the death of John the Baptist. Now that's interesting because A, it, it confirms that Josephus has deleted these people on purpose because I'm sure he knew exactly who they are. So the auxiliary troops that Josephus called fugitives were actually the army of the Edessans and King Abgarus. People won't know who this guy is because he's largely been deleted from history. And they came from Edessa. So we might as well do a quick screen share just to show people where um, Edessa is because I'm sure it's probably new to them. So it says I am sharing my screen. So can you see that? Yeah. You might need to uh, increase the size, perhaps. I don't know. Can everyone see that now, do you think? Yeah, it's full screen on my end. Oh, good. Excellent. Yeah, this, this uh, system that we're using doesn't show it full screen on my end. So, okay, as long as everyone can see it, that's great. So um, this is a map of first century um, sort of Near East. <clears throat> Bottom left, you can see Jerusalem. And then we run up into the pink area, that's Damascus. Running up a bit further, we come to Antioch and Aleppo. And then if we branch right where the um, purple arrow is pointing, that is Edessa. And it's beyond the Euphrates, Euphrates, so it's in Mesopotamia. So it's quite a long way from Judea. So it must have been very important for these Edessans to send um, their army all the way down to Jer Jerusalem, Judea, to have this battle with Herod Antipas. So why were these people fighting? Well, we know why King Aretas was fighting. King Aretas came from Petra, which is right down on the bottom of the map here, bottom left. We know why he was fighting. It was because his daughter had been, been sent home. His daughter had been divorced and sent home. Uh, but why were the Edessans there? Well, Moses of Corinne tells us exactly why. It was because as if by divine provenance, vengeance was taken for the death of John the Baptist. So the only other thing that happened at this time was John the Baptist got his head chopped off. So this is direct evidence, if ever there was some, that John the Baptist had to be a priest or a prince of Edessa. Otherwise, the army of Edessa wouldn't have come down to Judea to avenge his death. Now, there's a change uh, in the New Testament for you. In, in, you know, in, in the first 
few minutes of the investigation, we have found that John the Baptist was an Odessan prince. Ah, that changes things. Because, of course, if John the Baptist was an Odessan prince, his cousin was Jesus. Therefore, we might think Jesus was also an Odessan prince. And that changes the story somewhat. So now the Jesus character becomes a real king, not a pretend king. He becomes a real king because that's always been a mystery. You know, why is this real king, you know, called a carpenter? Um, well, he wasn't a carpenter, of course. Uh, <clears throat> it doesn't say carpenter. It says tecton. And a tecton from the Greek is an architecton. We still use the word today, an architect. But this was not a, an operative architect. This was a speculative architect. He was a Freemason. So Jesus was the um, uh, master of the um, Judean Lodge. That is why when you look at the um, raising of Lazarus, it is a third degree raising, exactly the same uh, as you would go through today, exactly the same as I went through when I became a Freemason. Uh, it's a third degree raising into the Masonic third degree. That's why Lazarus, when he come, comes out of the tomb, is hoodwinked and he comes out after three days. Uh, he comes out on the fourth day. Um, the only difference is that it's quite obvious that the initiation, because this it wasn't a real raising, of course, there was nobody came back from the dead. This is an initiation into this, um, this secretive sect, this um, uh, Masonic sect, because in the modern version, you, you die for 30 minutes. So you, you're put in a shroud and you're put, if, if your lodge is wealthy enough, you're put into a sarcophagus, but um, we didn't have one of those. So you're just in a death shroud for 30 minutes and then you're brought back to life again but it looks like in the gospel of john the uh, raising of lazarus was a real test of your endurance because you had to be in the uh, tomb for three days in pitch black you can imagine being in pitch black for three days not knowing if you would be rescued so it's a it's a real test of the brotherhood because you are reliant on someone coming to your aid. If no one comes to open the tomb, you're going to die in that tomb. So it's a real test of brotherhood, which is you know what these secret societies used to do. Uh, and so Lazarus was raised into the third degree. That's what we were were talking about um, with this. Um, Jesus being a carpenter, he wasn't, of course. Um, and um, what else was I going to talk about? Oh, yes, the um, uh, the famine. Um, so we have some further evidence that this monarchy uh, was involved in this. So... Um, This is going to be talking about the uh, famine. So this comes from, um, yeah, Moses of Corinne uh, mentions it. 
and so does Josephus. There's, there was this great famine, which was in late 40s AD or early 50s. Call it AD 50, something of that nature. There was the great famine, which was um, alleviated by Queen Helena. Here's another name people won't know about. Queen Helena of the Adiabeni. Uh, Adiabeni is over in um, Mosul in modern Iraq. Yeah, again, a long way from Judea. Anyway, Queen Helena of the Adiabeni in Iraq gave famine relief money to alleviate the famine in Judea, in Jerusalem. And this was quite famous. Everybody knows that this famine relief money was given by Queen Helena. But then we come to Acts of the Apostles, so now we're coming back into the New Testament story. We have the same famine. Um, and this comes from Acts 11.28, uh, and it says, uh, Agabus stood up and signified that there would be a great famine throughout the world, which came to the pass in the days of Claudius Caesar, about AD 50. Uh, then the disciples determined to send famine relief money to their brethren that lived in Judea, which they did, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Saul and Barnabas. Now, that wouldn't really mean much if you just read it very quickly and you didn't understand the story. Um, but if you know this history, this leaps out from the page at you to say, geez, here's another mention of this famous monarchy. Because who is Agabus? Well, of course, we don't know. It's not mentioned, but it's quite obvious that he is King Abgarus of Edessa. How do we know that? Well, because he was involved in this famine relief money, because we then come back to Queen Helena of the Adiabeni. Who is she? Now, if you read any classical books, they will say, oh, she was just the Queen of Adiabeni, which is down, it's Arbella, supposedly, down by Mosul in Iraq. But of course, Moses of Kareem says that Queen Helena was married to King Abgarus of Edessa. Ah, now that changes the story. So the couple, the royal couple who gave this famine relief money was King Abgarus and Queen Helena of Edessa. And that's what it's talking about in Acts uh, 11.28, that Agabus said there would be a famine and they sent this famine relief money down to Judea. So that famine relief money was sent by the Edessan royal family. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is Acts says that this famine relief money was taken to Jerusalem by Saul and Barnabas. Now, that's interesting because now we find that Saul was also a prince of Edessa. You see how this changes the story. We've only just started and we found that John the Baptist is a prince of Edessa. And so is Saul, a prince of Edessa. Ergo, you might say, Jesus was a prince of Edessa as, as well. So, yeah, that really does change the story. Can I ponder a question for you um, regarding your mention of early masonry? Okay, and I, I know that there's been, for instance, 
um, worship areas that have been discovered like in caves recently and they found places where there was people like like secretly uh, practicing mithraism you know and and they were doing this like underground or in caves and is it a possibility that this maybe early masonry was something that was done a little bit more in secret and and separate away from you know the government entities and things like that whereas today we find that you know many masons are actually part of maybe different government agencies or holding office oh no they would do the same i mean it was a stepping stone into <laughs> office of course so uh that's why Jesus became so important. He was not only um, a prince of Edessa and a Freemason, but he was angling and did become the uh, high priest of Jerusalem. Uh, you've only got to read Hebrews 7 to, to understand that Jesus became high priest. Although some people deny it, I don't know why. It's pretty obvious if you read Hebrews 7 uh, that he became high priest. So, yeah, but we can see what they were doing from, oh, uh, while we're here, this is the... Um, uh, the jacket cover for King Jesus, that's uh, a book that sort of explains why Jesus was a real king and not a pretend king. And then this is the main book, Jesus, King of Edessa, which explains why he's a king of um, Edessa. But um, when you're talking about Freemasonry. People, people can find that coin, too, today uh, online yeah, that you're showing there on the cover. Yeah, that's that's actually my coin. So yeah, um, it's quite nice. This this coin is of a king of Edessa, a later one. This is um, uh, King Abgarus the tenth, uh, I think. Um, but they all wore th the same royal crown. And the interesting thing, of course, is that the Edessan monarchy always wore a crown of thorns. So when we read about um, the Jesus character having a, crown, a plaited crown of thorns, you can see this crown is plaited. If I zoom in a bit further, maybe, you can, you can possibly see there that it's plaited. Yes, it's a crown correct. of thorns. Um, so yes, that's why Jesus was said to have a crown of thorns. It wasn't a crown of brambles. This was the traditional crown of the Edessan kings, they all wore this same crown of thorns. And I've drawn it like this because we don't know exactly, um, we don't know exactly what it looked like, but I've drawn it like this with a golden crown and maybe orange things because we don't know what these thorns are. Could be thorns. I wondered if they might be feathers, uh, feathers of the, um, of the phoenix maybe the, the fiery phoenix bird because we don't know what these thorns represent so that's still open to debate um, well and the phoenix and it, has always been a governmental symbol all through the centuries as well and i would uh, even contest yeah. that today i would even contest today that this so-called bald eagle that you see for united states of america or for the united states isn't necessarily an eagle. If you look closely at it, it's got a little tuft on the back of its head. And that's something that a phoenix or a raptor bird has, yeah. and the eagle does yeah. not have that. Yeah, it, they, they could have amalgamated those two symbols. Uh, I think the primary symbol they have uh, is the flying sun disk of Ra. 
So in Egypt, they had the flying sun disc, which is a sun with two big wings on it, of course. Now, uh, in later eras and abroad, that wasn't so acceptable. And so some people replaced it with an eagle. Uh, but we can tell it's the same symbol because the eagle was placed over the, um, over the doorway in the same fashion that the flying sun disc of Ra was placed. So it was performing the same function as the uh, sun disk of Ra. But yes, they could have uh, easily um, correlated it with the phoenix because that was a very, very similar sort of symbol, of course. And I do have, I, I mentioned the, the phoenix quite a lot uh, in my work when we come onto the Elagabal, when we talk about that. But this is a, a larger blow up of uh, the coin and you can see the crown of thorns. It's a proper <clears throat> papal crown. Uh, what do you call it for uh, the priests? Uh, a mitre. And uh, this, this same crown was worn for you know nearly 300 years. Um, this is what it looked like in, in Hatra. And you can see it's plaited. But again, we can't see, because this is made of stone, it's very difficult to see what the, the, the thorns are actually made of and what they're supposed to represent. Again, this is a bad picture because it's not looking <laughs> it's not looking at his um, his papal crown very much. But anyway, I think that is possibly the same crown. This is a yeah, that neighboring looks similar. city. That looks similar to the uh, hand of Mithra as well. Or the uh, Frisian hat as well. It, it does a little bit, yeah. Except the Frisian cap was was um, like three dimensional. This looks more sort of two dimensional. Um, but again, we don't know right. what this hat represents. But it does have this plaited look all over it, uh, and you can see the plaits here on this coin. This is an Odessan coin, so we know that this is what it looked like. Um, basically, the tradition came out of Parthia, out of Persia. Um, because they had similar hats, but they had different things along the crest. So one of the Parthian kings had antelopes all over the top of it. And I've got no idea what the antelope oh. signified. <laughs> but this guy's got... Thorns. Well, that's interesting. It's interesting the things that come out of Persia, like uh, Zoroastrianism. And, you know, people don't even know kings. I think it was the second temple. Uh, he actually came out of Persia. He came out of Iran. Yeah, indeed. And, uh, you know, this is just an image of the Neanderthals uh, in Islamia breaking up this statue. So this statue doesn't exist anymore. Um, this was the statue. And this is the uh, Muslim barbarians breaking it up with sledgehammers. They are such barbarians, these people. It's amazing that we suffer them to be on this earth. I, I find the historicity of a lot of this so interesting. And so many of the things that you covered, like regarding uh, Herod Antipas and uh, the beheading of John the Baptist and Paul, uh, so many of these things can be found if you're going and just doing a secular research of history. I, I know I was reading on... Uh, Herod Antipas, and there was actually a situation where I believe it was like his sister or maybe two sisters um, were traveling, and they 
heard about this guy named Paul that was being held in prison, and they went and visited him. Oh, yeah. And this is actually in the history books. Oh, it's in, it's in Acts of the Apostles as well. Um, this is, again, how we know that uh, Saul was not, uh, was not a carpenter. Uh, Saul was sent to prison for about seven years, I think, for teachings that were incompatible with Judaism. Um, so he's sitting there in prison, and he's visited by two of the uh, governors of Judea and by the king and queen of Judea and Syria. Um, so that would have been Agrippa II and his sister wife, uh, Berenike. And all of these very important people, including yep. the king and queen, came to visit him, him in jail. Now, in my book, you know, the king and queen of England doesn't go down to the local jail to visit a carpenter in jail. <laughs> people like that don't do it you know so he had to be hugely important for the king and queen of judea uh to go and visit him in jail so we know that saul was actually very important and yet christianity tries to pass this guy off as a carpenter uh, sorry not a carpenter a tent maker um yeah we know well, that let's clarify let's clarify something else as well and that is that in it's taught that on the road to damascus his name was changed from saul to paul which you mm -hmm. can read any of the what two or three accounts of that and you're never going to find the place where his name was changed from saul to paul saul was uh simply the latin name and paul was the roman name um no, I'm not sure that's the that's so. Saul was the name of the first king of um, of uh, the Jews, of course, of the Israelites. So that was King Saul. Um, I think they changed his name to Paul because it signified his position. So Paul means small or right. junior. So I think they called him Paul because he was the youngster. And we know he was the youngster on the evangelical tours because we know that Barnabas was the older. And I say they were brothers, actually, but there we go. Um, and Saul was the youngster. And that's why he became called Paul, because he was junior. He was Saul yeah. Jr. Yeah, meant little. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's why they did it. But um, going back to what the Nazarene believed in, we have this, which was the primary symbol of Nazarene Judaism, was the zodiac. And people don't know this, that the early symbol of Judaism was the zodiac. Uh, this zodiac is on the shores of the Sea of Galilee at uh, Tiberias. And it's in a, um, uh, a synagogue. And this synagogue was owned by Jesus. Jesus of Gamala again, that same guy. Um, and it's it's odd because, uh, well, we know that this, this is the Jewish uh, zodiac because A, it's in a synagogue, and B, that the image above this one, the, the other part of this mosaic, has the Temple of Jerusalem and the Ark of the Covenant and the Shofar, all of the um, attributes of Judaism. And this is quite big. It's like four or five meters across. This is not a small zodiac. This is large. Um, and it's 
sort of Greco-Hebrew, I suppose, because you've got this Greco-Egyptian Hebrew, you might say. It's got the standard images that you would know from the Zodiac today all across the top. Of course, it's all written in Aramaic because it's in a synagogue. Um, but nevertheless, the central character is Helios, the, <laughs> the Greek sun god. So this Zodiac is highly heretical. You weren't allowed to display images, of course, within Judaism. And you certainly weren't allowed to display God himself. I mean, this is like, you know, Muslims displaying um, Allah or Muhammad, you know, it's totally forbidden. But here in this synagogue, we've got Helios, the sun god, sitting in the center. And note, of course, that Helios, the sun god, is holding a, the world. The, the earth. world, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also <laughs> spherical it's a spherical earth with lines of latitude and longitude which are curved on it and so the earth is being held in the gravitational grasp of the sun so they knew the heliocentric model of the solar system that's the sort of information and knowledge that they had this is the sort of knowledge you would get in the lodge the Judean lodge that was run by Jesus, Master Mason, in fact, probably Grand Master Jesus of the Judean Lodge. Um, not only that, this particular. Helios there, and there's, he actually also has the rays or the rays mm. of Amon Ra coming off from the halo. Yeah, because he's the sun god, so he has the rays of, okay. of the sun coming off him. Um, and uh, his head is pointing exactly on the join between Aries and Pisces. Now, in procession, that gives us a date. It gives us a date of AD 10. Um, will your viewers be familiar with procession? Yes. So, yeah, under the procession, of course, the, um, uh, the constellations move, and so we went from the great month of Aries to the great month of Pisces in AD 10. So this particular zodiac is pointing to a specific date, which is why I know that this zodiac is uh, first century. If you read in the classical books, not that you will find this because it's generally quite hidden. You won't see any mention of these zodiacs. Um, it's, it's well hidden, but they will say it's third century. But the date that Helios is pointing at uh, is the first century, early first century. And for another reason, I know this is first century, because Josephus Flavius was sent to destroy this very zodiac. And that's interesting, because we have an artifact from history that Josephus Flavius actually mentions. Because remember, Josephus Flavius was the army commander in command of Galilee. And he was sent by the Judean priesthood um, to the hot springs, and this is known as the hot springs, to destroy the heretical images of animals there. And here we have, of course, heretical images of animals. And the way they got around this was that Jesus of Gamala burnt down the synagogue so that Josephus couldn't find it. However, in a simple burning, especially if you had covered the zodiac up, because this this was sacred, this zodiac, 
if you had covered up the uh, zodiac with uh, with some sand and then burnt down the synagogue on top of it the mosaic would would actually survive and so i think that this is a uh, zodiac from the first century there's quite a few of these this is another one this is that sephorus uh, again in judea uh, just to the west of galilee and again it's exactly the same you can see it's a big zodiac in the center you can see probably just about um it's helios you know it's helios because it's got the um, the horses uh helios rides in a chariot with four horses uh that's why you can see he's holding a whip here you can't see the um chariot because someone built a wall across here so it destroyed the zodiac but on this one you can see the horses down the bottom that used to pull helios across the sky um so helios is just santa claus uh, here's another discovery people probably won't know this but santa claus is the greek helios so helios used to ride across the sky in his chariot drawn by four horses with his red cloak you know flowing in the wind and of course the the primary date for helios was december the 25th because on december the 25th is when you reached the um, winter solstice and the sun started coming back to the north again and that was important because that would bring the spring that would bring the fruits of the next season so that's when Helios could bring you all the presents of the uh, next season. And of course, it's exactly the same story as it moved further north and it moved up into Scandinavia. They replaced the chariot with a sleigh. They replaced the horses with uh, reindeer. And um, the Helios is still Helios. He's still in his red cloak. And of course, he, he gives presents on December the 25th. It's the same story. So a lot of these stories do remain after, you know, thousands of years. We still tell the same stories, which is quite interesting. Um, but on this one, you'll see that not only do we have Helios, we've got the moon. So we've got the sun and the moon in the center as well. And that's interesting because, well, they were the two cosmic bodies that people were most interested in, of course, the sun and the moon together. And uh, that was redrawn in this one. Uh, which is, again, on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this now is in a Christian um, monastery on the south end of the Sea of Galilee. At um, um, Where's this one? This is at uh, Betxian. And they've replaced the 12 signs of the Zodiac with 12 men, which are now month. So you can read them in the Greek. So we've got Aprilos, Maos, um if i expand that down a bit we've got unios and then octobros on the right octobros novembros so we're still using the same month names as they were and this is from the sixth century you know this is quite a long time ago um and in the center we've got the sun and the moon exactly the same as on the zodiac of sephorus um but this is interesting because obviously it's a man and a woman so who is the man and the woman surrounded by 12 monthly disciples? This is an image of Jesus and Mary. Everybody knew that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. 
And so this is Jesus and Mary Magdalene acting as they always did, as above, so below, uh, as the sun and the moon. So she was the moon goddess. She was Isis, Selene, if you want to call her that. And he was um, the sun god, which is Artan Ra or Helios, whatever you want to call him. So everybody knew that this was the basis for original Christianity, this, for Nazarene Judaism before it became Christianity. And of course, Christianity has lost all of this. Christianity doesn't know any of this. Um, and then we get, um, we get the same in Arthurian legend as well. So this is the Arthurian round table. Uh, this is quite old, this table. It comes out of the uh, 12th century, so it's more than 800 years old. So it's quite quite old as tables go. Um, and the Arthurian character, okay, this has been redrawn um, by Henry VIII in the 16th century. But the king should be in the center, King Arthur, because he's he's... Henry VIII is trying to say he's King Arthur, you see. Uh, he should be in the center, surrounded by all of the knights of the round table. And he's got 24 instead of 12, but, you know, it's the same idea. Um, so he should be in the center of the table, just as Helios is in the center of the zodiac. So the round tables are zodiacs. <clears throat> and so... The Last Supper table was a zodiac. So in Arthurian legend, they say that there were three tables were made. There was the round table of the Last Supper. So the Last Supper table was a round table. Um, there was the round table of Joseph of Arimathea. And then there was the round table of King Arthur and his 12 knights. And they were all exactly the same. They were copies of each other. And this, that tells us what this round table symbolism was. So the round table of King Arthur is a zodiac. That's why it was a round table. Surrounded the king or Arthur um, or Jesus, surrounded by the 12 knights or the 12 constellations. Um, Ralph. Or, yep. I, I think I've read that... Um, the lore of King Arthur, if you go looking for like ancient texts or anything like that, they're mostly all going to be found in Italy. And that was actually the early popes who wrote the story of King Arthur. Um, yes, we can, we can have a look at that because that is interesting. Um, I've got some images here because that will be new to people as well. Uh, so let's have a look. What do we want? Zodiac? No. Arthur, Jesus. How about that? So if we open this, because this is always fun. Uh, we don't have to go through this in any great detail. But we can look at some of what you were saying there that... Um, the history of King Arthur is not actually as advertised. So that's what I want to show. Now, to bring that up, I think I have to come out of sharing. So I have to stop share.
and then I have to go back in again with the new share. Come on, new share. Yeah, I think the whole King Arthur legend is pretty fascinating in and of itself. I mean, that, that's a whole different rabbit hole people can go down. Yes, it's, it's a big rabbit hole. So now I'm sharing a new screen. So that should be. So has that come up now? You can see that? Yes. Looks good. Good. Okay. So, um, yeah, the interesting thing about this is, as you say, King Arthur is not very British, um, which is, you know, it's not how it is advertised. So, um, here's a question for viewers. So, viewers will know of King Arthur. They'll have seen some stories, maybe read some books. Um, dear old Hollywood films, which always put you on the wrong road, of course. <laughs> um, so the question is, where is the oldest um, statue, well, statue, en uh, engraving um, of King Arthur? Uh, it's a bas relief, basically. So where is the oldest sculpture of King Arthur? Well, the answer is, of course, on Modena Cathedral <laughs> in Italy. So the oldest King Arthur, and this goes back quite some time, actually. This is 12th century. So, you know, this is 800 more years old. Uh, the oldest image of King Arthur comes from Italy from Modena Cathedral. And if you happen to be down at Modena, of course, it's the um, Museum of Ferrari. So you can go and visit that at the same time. So, and this is the Arthurian story. So uh, we have all of the knights here on the left and right, besieging the tower in which Guinevere and Mordred are holed up in this, this tower, which is a part of Arthurian legend. And the guy, uh, one, two from the bottom left, that is King Arthur. And we know it's King Arthur because it's got his, his name is written, is written over the top of it. So we know this is King Arthur. And note all of the knights, especially on the right side here, are in Norman armor, which again dates this. So they're in Norman chain mail with the standard Norman kite shield and they're besieging this castle. So if we zoom in a little bit, we'll see King Arthur. Here's King Arthur. And you can just see his name at the top, Arturus. Anyway, you can see the A&R. Um, yeah, King Arthur is the only one who's not in full um, armor, so he doesn't have any chain mail on for some reason. Um, so that's King Arthur. And then this is the castle at the top. This is Guinevere. Just zoom in a little bit. Uh, and here you can see she's called Wenlegi. Uh, Guinevere has several names or mistranslations of her name, basically. Um, you can see it's the same name, but it's just pronounced uh, differently. So here she's called Wenlegi. And then Marduk is, this is the son of King Arthur. It's just one of the stories from Arthurian legend. Um, and then since we're looking at this, where's the other earliest 
sculpture of King Arthur? Well, it's in Italy, of course. And here it is. This is exactly the same frieze, but this one is on the uh, uh, cathedral at Bari in southern Italy. And you can see it's exactly the same frieze as we've just seen. Here's uh, Guinevere and uh, Marduk, as it were, um, in, in the tower and being besieged by all of the knights of the round table. And I think Arthur is um, this one here. So, yeah, this is very much a um, European story, not a British story. And here's the other one. This is the earliest mosaic we have of King Arthur. And you can see it says Rex Arturus, Rex being king, so King Arthur. And where's this one? Well, it's in Italy again, of course. And again, this is ancient. This is like 800 years. Uh, this is on the cathedral at uh, Otranto uh, in southern Italy. So, yes. Um, and this is what the round table of King Arthur would have looked like. So it's a round table with a hole in the center. So the king can sit in the center of the round table because the king was the um, the sun in the center of the zodiac. That's why he sits in the center of the table. And that's what he should be doing here. Um, but I rather think that originally, because remember this tradition came from the uh, Near East, uh, I think originally the round table wasn't a table because remember in the East, <clears throat> you don't have tables in the East. Um, you would sit on the floor. So you would bring a cushion and you would sit on the floor. So I think the original round table was actually this because it's quite big enough to, uh, to actually sit around. And so you would actually bring your cushion and each disciple or each, as it were, knight of the round table, 12 disciples, 12 knights of the round table, would sit at a particular sign of the zodiac. And that would be their symbol based on their character, probably, you know, whether they were um, a zealot or not or whatever, depended on your constellation you were associated with. And then the king would sit in the middle. The Jesus character would sit in the middle. And that would be the table. The Last Supper table, the table of uh, um, Joseph of Arimathea and the original table of King Arthur, when this history came from the East, would have been a zodiac that you actually sat around. And then you could eat your meal. And also it would be instruction because then you could teach um, your disciples or knights all about the procession of the equinox and the um, heliocentric model of the of the solar system and all that sort of thing. So I think it, there was a dual reason for all of this. Um, Would you draw a correlation between this and say as well the uh, 12 tribes of Israel? Because when you research them, you'll find they all had their own flag their own uh, say, gemstone, just like the Zodiac does today. Um, their flag would even encompass their own animal that, that each tribe had. And you see a lot of core 
correlation there between those. Yeah, um, you will actually see some Renaissance paintings. This has been known about for, for many centuries, of course. You will see some Renaissance paintings with the tabernacle out in the desert, surrounded by the 12 tribes in 12 tents. And each tent will be associated with a sign of the zodiac. You know, so there will be a Capricorn and a Pisces and a Taurus, and each tent will have the name of that constellation written on it. So, yeah, people from centuries ago knew that the 12 tribes represented the 12 constellations of the zodiac, because all of these early religions were Sabaean. They were star worshippers. They venerated the cosmos, a bit like your background material. Um, that was the primary veneration of these early um, religions. And uh, yes, yeah, so everything was associated with the zodiac and with the motions of the, um, the sun, moon and planets. I mean, we still do it today uh, in a covert manner, but people still don't know they're doing it. You know, if, if you're looking at um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, this is why I was railing against their new, you know, this new Disney remake of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, where Snow White turned out to be black, and then the Seven Dwarfs became seven strange men or something that weren't dwarfs at all, and there was only one dwarf there, because they don't understand the story. Uh, Snow White is the Snow White Moon, followed along the ecliptic by the seven planets. That's why they're dwarfs, because they are smaller than the moon. They are the dwarf um planets that follow the moon along the ecliptic but then the wicked witch who is actually the um, milky way the wicked witch gives uh snow white a corset and draws it tighter and tighter which is exactly what happens to the moon as it gets closer and closer to the sun it gets thinner and thinner and thinner as it approaches the sun and becomes the new moon. And if you pull the corset hard enough, she dies, which is exactly what the moon does. It goes black. It is the new moon. But then, and only then, can the moon kiss the sun in an eclipse. The moon can only do that during the new moon, when the moon is dead, when it's black. And then you can have an eclipse and they kiss they have, um, uh, what do they call it, inflagranto delecto, inflagrant delight, uh, where they consummate their marriage during the eclipse. And then if, if you're really in the right place, you get the diamond ring as you get the glint of the sun, you know, past the moon. Uh, and then the moon moves off and it becomes the... Um, waxing moon and so the moon gets fatter and fatter and fatter as if it's pregnant it comes back to life because it was dead it now comes back to life after kissing the sun prince and uh, then it comes back to life and gets fatter as if she's pregnant that is the story of snow white and it's cosmic and it's after the cosmic. after the prince kisses snow white she comes back to life imagine that yeah. Yeah, she kisses the prince and comes back to life. It's it's a it's a story of the solar system. So to rep, you know, for Disney to represent this uh, as as black Snow White and seven deformed people, um, it's it's just a complete travesty. It, it 
they obviously don't understand the basis for this story because the moon has to be white it's a white moon it's got nothing to do with skin color it's got nothing to do with people this is a story of the solar system uh, but they're so dumb these these new wokeites that uh, they've got no idea whatsoever they should read my books a little bit more often than they might get <laughs> they might get illuminated a bit more um yeah well uh, and we, 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 we've also got um i think it was hebrew you've got the uh the god that they had sin the sin god which was the moon and in, you in see Persia, yes. Mount Sinai, Sin AI. More stuff coming out of Persia, imagine that. It, I, I'm not sure it came from Sinai. Sin, um, they had a bit of a problem because Sin was the opposite. In, in Persia, they had the moon as being male, and that caused some problems in Edessa um, because, of course, the, the Egyptian and Greek and Roman moon was always female. So... In the sort of modern woke tradition, you know, wokeism has been invented before and discarded and whatever. They had this problem that they had the wrong sex when looking between Persia and uh, Egypt and Greece. And so in Palmyra, when they represented the king and the sun and the moon, they made the sun and the moon, uh, what would you call it, uh, androgynous? They, they made them like right. a transvestite, you know? Yep. So you couldn't tell the sex. And literally on the carving, if you look at the carving, you've got no idea if that carving is male or female. And they did that on purpose because there was this contention between whether the moon should be male or female. And so they just said, okay, we'll make it gender neutral. <laughs> but that yeah. was only- You see the same on... thing even in the Roman court with the eunuchs and things like that. Yeah. But this was a deliberate uh, political ploy to prevent any tensions between Parthia and, and, uh, and, and Rome because they had different ideas of the gods. So what do you do? Well, you just cover it up, basically. So they, they made them gender neutral. It's quite fun. I'm not sure if I've got a picture of that. I, um, but it's... Um, I wonder if I've got a picture, if we can have a quick look for that. Um, I think it's the triad... You know, and this goes back to a scripture that says there's nothing new under the sun, you know, which amazes me. And people go and they'll read scripture and they think they're reading some brand new ideas or whatever, and they're not. It tries to tell you, hey, there's nothing new under the sun. This isn't new stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here it is. So if I do a screen share, we can just pop this up because it's quite interesting to see what people have done in the past. So if we share screen this and share a window, click on that one and share, that should start coming up. So has that come up full screen? Yes, looks excellent. Good. Okay, so um, this is the uh, Palmyra triad. Now, Palmyra was owned by Edessa, part of the same monarchy. It was one of their other cities that they ruled. And this is a... Um, um, a triad so in the center is the king so on the left is aglibol and you can see that's the moon because it's got the moon horns behind behind it the center is uh, the uh, king who is belshamen and then on the right is the sun who's malakbel 
so yeah, there's the king in the center. So the, the, this is a human being in the center. On the left is the moon, on the right is the sun. And as you can see, the two faces, left and right, are, um, I don't know, gender neutral, I would say. <laughs> yes. But that's been done on purpose. Just like the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> yes, yeah, a bit like that, yes. So you can't yeah. tell exactly what it is. So yeah, that's a bit of bit of fun for that. Um, that's quite important, actually, I say, because this is a first century statue from Palmyra, which was owned by Edessa. So this was the Edessan king. So this is a sculpture of the biblical Jesus. It's the earliest sculpture we have of the biblical Jesus as the king of Edessa. And as you can see, he is with long hair and long beard and everything else, exactly as he's often portrayed. Um, so yeah, this is interesting. It's true because it's, uh, it is definitely a king of Edessa. And the king of Edessa at that time was most probably uh, the biblical Jesus. Because remember, the king of Edessa had the same name. Um, the Jesus was known as King uh, Jesus Emmanuel from that very strange um, prophecy which said um, that uh, a virgin will give birth to a um, to a prophet, to a messiah, and his name will be called Emmanuel, which was the most stupid uh, prophecy ever because Jesus was never called Emmanuel. So he was not the Messiah because he was never called Emmanuel. He must have just been a naughty boy. Um, so what does that prophecy, what's it supposed to mean? Why did they throw it in there? Um, well, it's because it does make sense if you know that Jesus was a king of Edessa, because the king of Edessa at this time was known as King Jesus Manu of Edessa and Judea, because he came, became the king of Judea as well. Um, so King Jesus Emmanuel and King Jesus Manu was the king of Edessa. So he has the same name even. Uh, and that's why you get this strange prophecy uh, about Emmanuel, because people will sort of say, what's this Emmanuel business? What does that mean? Ah, oh, King of Edessa, who was that? Ah, yes, Manu. Yeah, Manu the Sixth. We know him. So this is how secrets are maintained in secret societies. You hold the secret in plain sight, but only the initiated will understand what it actually means. Um, so you don't need to write down, you know, secrets and lock them away. You don't need to keep this as a secret within uh, your lodge. You can have it out in the open. But only the people there's, who have I, been initiated will understand. There's a reference I saw, and I'm really leaning to thinking it was you that showed it. Uh, I think it was regarding the parable of the vineyard, and it had to do with Jesus and Mary and how that all came about? Yes, um, we, we have that. So um, we can look at that because that. Oh, good. I'm glad it was. Uh, you. 
I was, I yeah. was hoping I didn't have that confused. Yeah. <laughs> now, this tells us what this was all about, because, of course, the other problem is what was this revolt all about? It was in Judea. It was something to do with, you know, a civil war in Judea. The Romans were there in the background, but the Gospels don't explain it very well. Uh, what was it all about? Well, the parable of the vineyard owner explains everything. And uh, this comes from Matthew. I think there's a couple of versions of this. Um, I've got Matthew 21:33, so people can go and have a look at that if they want. And it says, um, there was a Lord who planted a vineyard and let it out to a tenant and went to a far country. And when the harvest drew near, he sent his servants to the tenant that he might receive his rent. But the tenant took his servants and beat one and killed another. So when the Lord comes to the vineyard, what will he do to those tenants? He will miserably destroy those wicked men and let out his vineyard to another tenant who will pay his rent on time. And of course, what on earth is that meaning? <clears throat> Why is um, the man of the people, Jesus, championing the rights of uh, absentee landlords to kill their tenants if they don't pay their rent on time. What does that have to do with Christianity and looking after the poor people and everything else? You know, what does that have to do with the pauper prince of peace who was just a carpenter? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But it is a parable, and therefore we can read it on two levels. Uh, and what it was actually talking about was the Jewish revolt. We've already said that, you know, all of these events took place rather later than advertised, and it was all about the Jewish revolt. So all we need to do to understand this is to change the Lord into the Edessan king, because remember, he was an Edessan king. He was King Isis Manu VI of Edessa. Uh, and we change the uh, tenant into the Romans. And then we, because the Romans were on Edessan lands. Uh, and that's what it was all about. So we can read it again. And it says, there was an Edessan king who had lands in Judea. Yes, he did. They had become the king and queen of Judea. We'll look at that in a minute. Um, and they let out this land to the Romans and went to a far country. Yes, they went back to Edessa. And when the harvest drew near, he sent his servants to the Romans that he might receive his rent for his lands. But the Romans took his servants and beat one and killed another. So when the Edessan of these uh, lands comes, what shall he do to these Romans? He will miserably destroy these wicked Romans and let out his lands to another tenant who will pay their rent on time. That's what this was about. Uh, it was a tax dispute. The Edessans were supposed to have been given their lands tax-free by Emperor Augustus, no less, uh, in, in previous decades. And now the Edessans had Romans sitting on their lands, which they thought was, was theirs, and they weren't paying any rent for being there. Not only that, the Romans were demanding rent from the Edessans. They wanted tribute. Well, what sort of tenant asks for rent from the landlord? You know, this is all back to front as far as the Edessans were concerned. And the Romans 
should pay up. So what will the Odessans do when they come down to Judea? Well, they will miserably destroy those wicked Romans and let out their lands to another tenant who will pay their rent on time. That is why we had the Jewish revolt, which you will not see um, explained. If you look in a classical textbook or wiki or anything, it will not explain why the uh, Jewish revolt happened. It happened because the Romans were on the Edessan lands. They considered these lands to be theirs and they wanted rent from the Romans and they weren't paying it. And here is a call to war. The Romans are on our land. We're going to go down there. What do we do when we meet these Romans who won't pay their rent? We're going to miserably destroy these um, tenants, these Romans who won't pay their rent. And remember, that the Edessans were the kings and queens of Judea as well. So they were the kings and queens of Edessa. But during that famine that we talked about, uh, when they sent famine relief money down to Judea, they also sent their influence down there as well. So the queen of Edessa, Queen Helena, <clears throat> she, she paid for the, uh, the largest palace and the largest tomb in Jerusalem. She was the de facto uh, queen of Judea. And then she bought all of the furniture for the temple of Jerusalem. So she bought the solid gold menorah for the temple. So she was the de facto queen of Judea. And therefore her son, who would have been King Isis Manu of Edessa, was now the prince and the king of Judea. So therefore he was the king of the Jews. That's why the Jesus character is known as the king of the Jews. The only king of the Jews at this time was King Jesus Manu of Edessa, who became the king of the Jews. Well, his brother became the king of the Jews in about, um, let's think about this, in about AD, early AD 50s, when his father died. Um, and then his brother died. His brother would have been James, of course. James was stoned to death, if you remember, in Acts of the Apostles. Um, when James died, who was King Jesus Manu V, then his brother became king, who was King Jesus Manu VI. And that was the Jesus character. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, and, and we see this played out even today. You know, if, if you want to accept a benefit, well, then guess what? You're going to get ruled over also. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an easy way, isn't it, of, of taking over a nation. You know, you can either go in there with a big army or you can go in there with lots of generosity and people will want to join you. I mean, you've only got well, to look at what, what's happening in, in Ukraine at present. Um, the Ukraine dispute is in part because Russia likes to go in there with armed force and the EU goes in there with lots of money and says, well, do you want to join the EU? You know, there's lots of money if you join the EU. And of course, the Ukrainians say, yeah, that's a good idea. And then Russia comes in with an army and they go, go away. We don't want. So, you know, they are the two ways of, well, I suppose there are others, but there are the two ways of uh, taking over a nation. You can do it with an I think army. It was, yeah. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, I think it was said, uh, there's two ways to take over a country, either by the sword or by debt. 
and they really well, loved exactly that so. because it's a whole lot less bloody. <laughs> I was going to say you could also do it by marriage, so that was another way they used to do it quite a lot as well, with these intermarriages between the various kings. Um, but yeah, it's it's an easy way of taking over a nation, isn't it? So she was extremely generous. She, she um, paid for all of the uh, furniture for the uh, Temple of Jerusalem. She saved the nation from famine and built the biggest palace there and the biggest tomb. And lo and behold, she was the queen of Judea. And that's why Jesus was known as the king of the Jews, because he was. He became, when, when his mother died, he became the king of the Jews. And when his brother died. Um, so the story fits together very nicely. And that's always a good proof of a theory because, you know, it's only a theory because we don't have sworn affidavits from all of these people. So you have to go through the, uh, the histories that we have. And what I've been doing, which other people don't do, is matching up all of the different um, uh, the, the different texts that we have, the different chronicles that we have that explain these events. So, for instance, uh, one of the things I've been banging on about recently um, is that the Council of Jerusalem is actually mentioned in the works of Josephus as the, the visitation between the... Uh, uh, the apostles and Adiabeni. So we have these two very, very similar stories. The Council of Jerusalem was deciding whether the people of Antioch should be circumcised or not, because they wanted to become Jews. Remember, the Edessans, oh, I haven't said this so far, the Edessans were Jewish. They were Nazarene Jews. Queen Helena of Adiabeni of Edessa, she became a Nazarene Jew. So they were Jews and they were Nazarene. But at the Council of Jerusalem, there was this big argument as to whether they should be circumcised, because that was obviously a big part of Judaism. And that was a big discussion. Now, if you read it in Acts of the Apostles, it says that, you know, these apostles were going up and down to Antioch, trying to convert the people of Antioch into Judaism. But what it doesn't tell you is that Edessa was called Antioch. Its official name was Antioch Edessa. So I think in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts of the Apostles, they were actually going backwards and forwards to Edessa, not to Antioch on the Mediterranean coast, but to Edessa. And of course, who was going backwards and forwards? It was Saul again, of course. Uh, but then in, if you look into um, Josephus Flavius, he has a very similar story about um, apostles going to the king and queen of um, Adiabeni. Now, we've already said that the queen of Adiabeni was the queen of Edessa, so we know there's a link there. And so now we have another story. And again, it was all about... Um, uh, about circumcision, because they wanted to convert the people of Adiabeni into Judaism. But now we know that Adiabeni was Edessa. They were linked because their monarchs were the same. 
we now have two stories that are exactly the same. We have Acts of the Apostles and Josephus Flavius giving us exactly the same story about these apostles going to convert not just the people, but the monarchy of Edessa Adiabeni, which is the city of Edessa. So now, again, we've got examples where the, the gospel story is written there in real history. Because I think we've got four editions of this same story. We've also got the doctrine of Adai, which is the same story about these same uh, apostles going backwards and forwards to Edessa. And in the doctrine of Adai, it actually says they're going to Edessa. It doesn't say they're going to uh, Adiabeni. It says they're going to Edessa um, to convert the people of Edessa. So it's the same story again. And that's the, the beauty of this research. If you're able to have a lateral mind and think about this, we now have three versions of the same event. And so if you start to amalgamate those three versions, you can see behind any of the biases. Because, of course, Josephus has a bias. He was a Roman. He was, well, he wasn't, he was Jewish, of course, but he was working for the Romans. He was writing these books for Emperor Vespasian. So he has a Roman bias. And one of those Roman biases is he could not mention Edessa. It was forbidden. So you can do an interesting thing. You can go into his works and type in Edessa or King Agbaras or King Manu, and it'll just say nothing found, not there. Even though Edessa was a very important place, the beginning of Christianity, even as other historians admit. And you can do the same, of course, in, in the Gospels, and it'll say no Edessa. No Agbaras, all it gets is Agabus, of course. No King Manu. So these people have been deleted from history on the command of Emperor Vespasian. And the only way you can see yeah, just through... Like, yeah. Just like you've been deleted from Wikipedia. Yes, that's right. Yes, I've been deleted. Yeah. I was actually. I didn't have a wiki page and they deleted it. They said, you can't have one. They said, um, they, they said you ahead. haven't written enough books. And I've said, well, I've written 14. They said, oh, well, that's not a problem. You, you don't have any international books. I say, I'm, I'm printed in China and Korea. Oh, yeah, but that's not international enough. <laughs> so I, got I got deleted anyway. So, you know, I showed them. That brings up a couple more questions that I had for you. So Go I have, um, people don't re realize, I think, this is my Chinese. <laughs> this is my Solomon book in Chinese. So I've, I've got a few of these. I was quite big in China. It's, it's sort of dropped off a little bit. We don't have it so much. This is another Chinese one. This is um, Eden in Egypt, I think, this one. So, yeah, I used to be quite big in China. <laughs> well, as long as you're showing books, I, I recommend that people also go and pick up um, a book on Josephus and read that. You're probably not going to be able to see it. Uh, that's not showing but, um, very well at present. You might have to... Ah, that one, yes, Josephus. Yeah, yeah, yeah Josephus, I, I recommend that. But that reminds me of a couple of questions I had for you. One concerning um, Josephus Flavius, I want to look at another uh, Flavian character. 
and that would have been Arius uh, Copernicus Pisa. Do you believe mm. Pisa could have as well have been Josephus? No, I, I read that theory and I found it to be full of holes. So they were making some very wild connections. So I don't think the Piso theory is correct. I mean, it's sort of similar in a way. Um, Atwill has a very similar theory to mine as well, that everything was written by Emperor Vespasian. No, actually, he says everything was written by Josephus Flavius on the command of Vespasian, which is virtually right. what I'm saying. But then he says it was all fictional. Well, if you've got Josephus Flavius writing for Vespasian about a civil war in Judea, it doesn't need to be fictional because we actually have a real civil war with real people. And so if you match up those people, you will find the gospel story. So I, I, I see absolutely no reason why Atwill says it has to be fictional. It's real. These are real characters. You just have to find which character is which. And unless you know anything about the Odessan royal family, you won't know that these real people actually existed. But they do. Well, we also I know mean, Josephus smooched up to Vespasian also, uh, referring to him, telling him he was the Messiah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And he gave him the star prophecy. <clears throat> but that's interesting as well, of course, um, because Vespasian needed a an oracle on his side because he was a nobody. He wasn't royal. Um, so Josephus gave him the star prophecy, which which is a Judaic prophecy that said the next emperor of the world, Roman emperor, would be a star from the east, from Judea. <clears throat> so who in Judea was born under the eastern star? It was the Jesus character. So the star prophecy indicated that the next emperor of Rome <clears throat> would be Jesus himself. And that is, of course, why when you look at the uh, crucifixion event, that Jesus was um, crucified while wearing a purple cloak and a crown of thorns. <clears throat> so the crown of thorns we've already looked at is the traditional crown of the Odessan royalty. The purple cloak isn't uh, emblem of the emperor. It shows that the uh, the true goal of the biblical Jesus was that he wanted to become the next emperor of Rome because only the emperor was allowed to wear a purple cloak. It was the imperial purple. Though that changes the whole ten tenet of the gospel story and also of real history because again within real history nobody will explain why this jewish revolt was actually happening now we've seen one reason already is a tax dispute with rome but the other part of this revolt against rome is the throne of rome was empty so the revolt started in 66 when everyone knew that nero was a dead man walking most unpopular uh, emperor ever, um, especially after Popea had been kicked to death. Um, so then the Jewish revolt starts. In 68, Nero is dead and the throne of Rome is empty. 
Interestingly enough, Nero was killed by Epaphroditus, who we think is the same Epaphroditus who was the um, uh, publisher for Josephus and for Saul. Because the Epaphroditus who killed Nero was the uh, scribe for Nero. So we have an interesting connection there. But anyway, right. the throne of Rome was empty. So it was open to whoever could come and grab it. And four people threw their hat into the ring to say that they would be the next emperor. And of course, three of them got killed. Um, and then we were left with a final battle in Judea. So I think this was the year of five emperors, not the year of four emperors. And the fifth emperor was the biblical Jesus, King Jesus Manu of Edessa. And that's what this battle was all about in Judea. It was the final battle in the year of five emperors. And whoever was going to win this battle in Judea was going to become the next emperor of Rome. So we could have ended up with Emperor Jesus as being the next emperor. You know, but you, of course, Ralph, you joined an, you joined another dot for me, I think, because I remember reading a number of years ago that Mary, who you referred to as having held the position of queen, okay, prior to Jesus being king. Uh, I read that Mary, as symbolized for the church, used to uh, be shown in wearing purple or like a royal blue. But then an edict came down that she nor be clothed that way in, in statues or paintings that it had to be like the light pale blue that we see today. Mm. Yes, because she was she was she was a princess as well. So this is another part of uh, of my books that I write about. Um, it was mentioned by uh, Professor Robert Eisenman that uh, Mary Magdalene was Mary Bothus, who's a famous, well, semi-famous person from the Jewish revolt, um, because the, the two systems seem to be same, the same. So uh, in, in the Gospels, we have Mary and Martha at the house of Simon, the Bethany sisters. And within the Talmud, we have Mary and Martha Bothus, who lived at the house of Simon, because their father was Simon Bothus. And that's why the Bethany sisters live at the house of Simon. So, okay, that's interesting. Uh, but the more interesting thing is that Simon Bothus was the richest man in Judea. So Mary Magdalene was the <clears throat> richest woman in the Near East. Um, when she married, and of course, Mary Bothus, when she married, she married Jesus. <laughs> Jesus of Gamala, the same guy we were talking about before, um, who, uh, who was said to be the leader of the Jewish revolt again. So again, we get a connection with the Edessans. He was the leader of the Jewish revolt, the guy who became high priest of Jerusalem, the guy who was governor of Galilee that um, Josephus Flavius was trying to jail, the guy who owned the um, Zodiac we were talking about. This Jesus of Gamala married Mary Bothus, who is Mary Magdalene. The problem well, Mary Magdalene, I've... 
go ahead. The problem being that Mary Bothus, when she married, she had a dowry of 1 million gold denarii, which in modern terms is about $26 billion. Yeah, she was stupendously rich. She was the richest woman in the whole of the Near East. And again, that upsets the story because no longer do you get these pauper prince of peace and his prostitute uh, girlfriend. Now you get the king of Edessa, who is now the king of Judea, and he's marrying the richest woman in Judea, who was his own half-sister. So Mary Magdalene was the half-sister of, um, of, of Jesus, because that's what they always did. I mean, Queen Cleopatra married both of her brothers. Um, uh, who else do we have? Oh, yeah, King Agrippa married his sister, Berenike. Um, and so that's what you always had from these families. Um, and I, I was going to say, a lot of people would kick against the marriage idea, but uh, Mary was known to have carried, which was the norm back at that time, uh, a little vial of uh, spikenard oil around her yes. neck. And they would carry the whatever oil they could, which spikenard was very expensive at that time. But they would carry that, and it was kind of the idea of maybe a, a girl's hope chest, looking at the future and looking at a wedding or a marriage. And that, that is actually what she washed the feet of Jesus with at the Last Supper, yep. which was actually an act of marriage. That was a, um, that's symbolic of how they would marry at that time. Yes, well, more than that, uh, it wasn't just a, a, a symbol of marriage, it was a symbol of kingship. Now, there's an interesting story about that uh, spikenard uh, in that um, it was the same bottle that held the foreskin of Jesus. And this comes from <laughs> one of the apocryphal gospels. So Jesus was anointed with his own foreskin. Um, that, I mean, that, that comes from a second century gospel, you know, I'm not making it up. Um, it's all there. Now, the other thing is that this anointing is how you make a messiah. It's how you make a king. You have to be anointed with oil, in this case, spikenard. It's exactly the same uh, ceremony that King Charles of Britain went through just last year. Uh, during that ceremony, they put a tent over the top of him so you couldn't see what was going on. And they anointed him yep. with oil in the same fashion. So King Charles at that time became the Messiah. He became the Christ because that's what Messiah means. It means the anointed one. That's what Christ means. It's not some spiritual title. It just means the anointed king. So for Mary Magdalene to be anointing exactly. Jesus with oil is exactly the same as the um, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury anointing King Charles with oil just last year. So that's when Jesus became the king. That's And the reason he became the king like that is because this all happened very suddenly. Uh, and, of course, within these families, you've got to stake your claim. Otherwise, someone else is going to nick the throne from under you. So there was no chance of going back to Odessa and going to a proper palace and whatever uh, to be anointed there. So they just 
um, anointed him at the uh, house of Simon. And he was anointed by Mary Magdalene because she was the high priest, which elevates her as well in, into being a high priest because only a high priest could anoint the king, of course. It wasn't just anyone. Exactly. Um, so they, they and um, and as, as to her status, um, whether she was uh, married, uh, sorry, whether she was um, the sister of Jesus, uh, this comes from one Corinthians 9, um, 6, is it? 9, 5, I think. And um, this is Saul asking for a sister wife, because you have to understand that many of these people used to marry within the family because it was the only way of keeping your wealth uh and your power within the same family so the the um egyptian uh, pharaohs used to do this all the time akhenaten married three of his sisters uh the biblical abraham married his sister why did abraham marry his sister well it's to keep the bloodline pure within that family so this is nothing particularly unusual but anyway, Saul says, uh, have we not the power to lead about a, um, a sister wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brethren of the Lord and Cephas do? So Saul was asking to have a sister wife. Now, if you read this in the sort of the American standard or something, it'll say a sister and a wife or a sister in the church or some other strange. But in the Greek, it's an Delphi Gurney. In, and the only way you can actually see what it means if you want a translation is by getting a, a Derby Bible or a Rotherham Bible, which are literal translations, because every other Bible tries to explain and interpret what the text is saying, because the text is not always clear, as you can understand in uh, these texts in the Greek. And so there's an amount of interpretation going on. Uh, but if you get the Rotherham or the Derby, they are literal translations and they don't care what it says, whether it makes sense or not. They just put it down literally. And the Rotherham says, uh, have we not the right to take around a sister wife? Because that's what they were wanting to do. That's what all of the disciples, and it says all of the disciples had a sister wife. It just <laughs> wasn't just Jesus. Um, because that's how they keep the um, the power and the wealth within the same family. So yeah, Jesus was, initially I thought he was married to his sister, so Mary Magdalene was his sister, but I, I think that the dates don't work, uh, so I think she must have been a half-sister, um, because I think she was quite a lot younger right. than, than Jesus was, so she must have been a half-sister. But, you know, um, Sarah was, was a half-sister, you know, Abraham married his half-sister, not his full sister. So I think that's what went on there. And yes, she was Mary Bothas. And that's interesting because she was the most powerful, most richest woman in the whole of Judea. And also we have, well, we have a, a reasonable amount of information about her. Uh, after the Jewish revolt, she lost all of her money. And so that was a big change. So we get a comment from the uh, Talmud <clears throat> where uh, the high priest of Jerusalem, as it were, after um, the Jewish revolt, um, Yohanan ben Zakkai, 
<clears throat> who became the sort of high priest after the Jewish revolt. And uh, he comes across her picking barley grains from a, among the dung of Arab donkeys because she's hungry, she's starving. And he pretends not to know who she is. So he's, he says, um, who are you? You know, and she says, I'm, I'm, I'm Mary Bothus. And uh, he says, Mary, what has happened to the great wealth of your household? And there she is picking barley grains because she's starving from the floor. Um, so, yeah, how are the mighty fallen? And that, of course, is why we get the, uh, the further, you can't call them gospels, but um, mythologies about Mary sailing to the south of France because of course she had no future back in Judea these were now persona non grata nobody because uh, they had lost the Jewish revolt to the Romans um, they weren't going to kill even though she was on the wrong side they weren't going to kill uh, the ex-queen as it were so she was put into uh, voluntary or compulsory exile in the south of France but you know, this is a, a favorite place they used to do this, so it makes sense. Um, Herod Archelaus, the son of um, King Herod the Great, he was sent over to the south of France. Pontius Pilate, he was sent over to the south of France. So it seems like a sort of mm, a fairly convenient place to put these people who, who you didn't like that much, keep them away from Judea, you know, send them over to the south of France. And then you get all of these um, mythologies about um, Mary being in the south of France in Provence. Uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that the idea of this in the south of France is just as accepted as George Washington is in the United States of America. Oh, yeah. like some of the old stories. In the south of France, oh, yes. that this isn't just a myth. This is kind of a factual understanding. Yeah, well, I call it a mythology because there's no direct evidence. But yeah, there's a lot of mythologies that say that she came ashore at uh, Marie uh, Saint-Delamar in the south of France. And they still have a ceremony every year. The, the gypsies, of all people, gather together every year and celebrate the coming of Mary Magdalene to the south of France. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a very... Before we wind out, I, I had a second question I wanted to uh, pick your brain on a little bit. And, and this is regarding translations, because so many things went from the Hebrew, then into the Greek, then back into the Hebrew, then into English. And, you know, things we know get lost in translation. And we see, you know, the reference to the Nazarenes uh, in Scripture and other writings. And... I've always felt that there was a mistranslation there done, that it was actually not the Nazarenes with a Z, but the Nazarenes with a T, because the Nazarene was a sect of what, like, uh, Samson was a part of. You didn't cut your hair, you didn't drink wine, yes. and I believe and that was the following as like the Essenes or Jesus as well. Yeah, it was uh, the Nazarites. Uh, they're known in the Old Testament. They were called the, the Nazarites um, or Nazarene. And yes, it's obvious that they are the same. There are some people who will still uh, deny that and they'll say, no, they're different. But of course, they have the same meaning. So a Nazarene means to separate yourself off 
from the rest right. of society um like a monk you know in a monastery to separate yourself off and of course they did with the Essene down at Qumran on the uh, Dead Sea there uh that would be perfect for a Nazarene sect down there because they were separated off but the Nazarites um are from the Old Testament including Samson as you were saying that means exactly the same in Aramaic it means to separate yourself off and yeah it, it, it looks like these are exactly the same sect it wasn't an invention of the first century it was an old sect of judaism that went back into history and remember they had the same traditions um samson would not cut his hair that's where his strength came from well the nazarene in the first century had the same they did not cut their hair that's why jesus always has long hair that's why the um, Edessans, if you look at all of the Edessan coinage, all of the kings have long hair and a beard because they were Nazarene. They did not pull their hair. They did not cut their hair. And we even get a complaint about this from Josephus, um, who calls them, um, he calls them the Babylonian Jews from beyond the Euphrates. And of course, Edessa is beyond the Euphrates, unlike one of my critics who thought it I think he thought it was on the Black Sea at Odessa and he was trying to tell me where Odessa was no Odessa is beyond the Euphrates uh, in Mesopotamia and this is exactly what Josephus Flavius is saying the Babylonian Jews beyond the Euphrates uh, but then he calls them barbarians Okay, well, that's interesting because I think I have a much better translation of what barbarian is, because if you look at a classical interpretation, it means that someone who has a different language, he can't speak the language properly. Um, and uh, so they call them barbarians. But I don't, that's not what Josephus is saying, because he can't be meaning that they had a different language because he spoke the same language as the Edessans. He was an Edessan prince. They all spoke Aramaic. So we're not talking about a separate language here. Uh, we're talking about hair. That the uh, Edessans were barbarians because they had long hair. And of course, that quip comes from the Latin barber, which means long hair or a beard. Um, and we still use the same term today, of course. A barber is someone who cuts your hair. So when they're talking about barbarians, they're talking about hairy people. And of course, the Edessans were hairy because they had long hairs and beards. Um, so yes, that's the Nazarene. They did not and, cut their hair, so they were barbarians. And from your photo, they evidently had a tail too. <laughs> Apparently, yes, it just it arrives. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, he's, he's, I've been upstairs too long and he's wondering what's going on. Yeah. Beautiful kitty cat. Uh, really appreciate you being here today, uh, Mr. Ellis, and uh, need to do this again in the future. Um, do you have anything you'd like to close out with? Uh, no, just a, a, a quick promotion, I suppose, uh, if, if people want to uh, see my books. Um, the website is edufu-books.com. They're all available on Amazon. Uh, try to get the 2017 or later uh, editions because there are new editions there as well as some of the old ones. 
Um, and they should be, if you find it on Amazon, they should be a part of a series. So I have the, uh, uh, the King Jesus trilogy, which is now a trilogy in five parts. So that's interesting. And uh, I have the um, Egyptian Testament series. So, and that's a six book series, I think. So um, you can get those on Amazon. I've got the um, uh, YouTube channel. Uh, which is just YouTube Ralph dot Ellis, I think, and it'll find it. If you find a sort of um, uh, a red and gold phoenix, that's my sort of uh, thumbnail. And then I've started posting on X now, X Twitter, um, which I'd like to call Twix uh, because I don't like posting on X, so I Twix on X. And that's been going quite well. I've only been doing that for about two or three months. And my handle there is at Ralph Ellis with an F because someone else had taken the PH. So it's just Ralph Ellis with an, with an F. And I'm quite active on there at present. I've got lots of support coming in there. Um, and that's good. So some of the, um, some of the posts are up to 100,000 views. So that's, that's going quite well over there. And it's also quite nice and pictorial. You see, I couldn't have done, I've, I've got to thank Musk for this um, because I couldn't have done this before Musk came along because I would have been kicked off <laughs> Twitter in, in a trice, <laughs> you know, with, with my material. They wouldn't have allowed me to stay there at all. So anyway, Musk has allowed me to stay there, which is good. And we also have AI imagery. Uh, and that's been rather revolutionary. So I can make images for each article I put up there. And I have to say, they're quite good, some of these images. So, you know, in, in my previous works, I had to I had to commission paintings quite often, uh, which would actually cost me because I couldn't find, I would either try to use Renaissance paintings, or if I had something unusual, I would actually commission an artist to to actually make it, which became expensive. Um, but now I can get AI to draw me a picture in 10 seconds. So that's good for me. It's not so good for the artists, but um, it's been a bit of a, a revolution. So my latest image I've put up there is of um, Akhenaten and Nefertiti as hippies in hippie dress, which, of course, you would never <laughs> find that image on the Internet. But I wanted this image for this article. <laughs> And, uh, you know, commissioning that from an artist would, would cost you an arm and a leg. But AI drew it for me in 10 seconds. And it's a nice image. So anyway, that's the story of me on X. So I'm on X now as well. All right. And I'll have a link for all of that below in the description box. People check that out. Um, as I said in the opening of this episode, oh, always look down in the description boxes. I always try to load a bunch of stuff in there. A wonderful Sunday uh, late evening as it is over there across the pond. Yep. Good, good to see you. Good to be on the show. And we'll see you again soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye.